0: London is is a large gateway city, of course, but you know all the new product that is coming through. There's an expectation that that has to be net zero carbon, which is a wholesale change from from where we were only a couple of years ago, which which is great. Okay,
1: so the expectation has changed dramatically. Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: and what and what we're seeing, which again is great, is you know we ha- we always had a conviction, as I mentioned, that not only do you have a, a moral responsibility to to build sustainably, you know, be energy efficient, but also it's the right thing to do from a financial perspective for your investors. You know, we believed that it would enhance returns at the end of the day. And what we're starting to see over the last couple of years is some, you know, quantifiable evidence that 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 is correct. We're seeing some hard data that backs that up.
1: That was Rory Allen a portfolio manager within Bearings' European real estate team. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number four of season five. All season long, we'll be bringing you the latest on factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM Debt, High Yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to be the first to know about our latest episodes, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. You can find us by searching Streaming Income. My guest today is Rory Allen. Rory is a London-based portfolio manager within Baring's European Real Estate Group. Rory's focus specifically is on managing value-add equity strategies that aim to generate attractive risk-adjusted returns for clients through the development and repositioning of real estate assets across Europe. Our conversation focused on the dynamics shaping European real estate markets today. Specifically, we talked about what Rory and team are seeing on the ground today when it comes to tenant demand, pricing for assets, and the competitive environment overall. We also talked about where the team is seeing opportunities today in sectors ranging from logistics to living to office. And Rory gave what I thought were some really insightful examples to illustrate how this is actually playing out in the real world. And finally, we talked about what's next and what factors investors may want to consider if they are allocating to European real estate strategies. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Rory Allen. All right, Rory, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Greg.
1: Excited to have you here. Uh, It's been a little while since we've talked about European real estate on streaming income, so I am uh, excited to dive into it uh, with you here today. Um, But maybe before we get started talking about current market dynamics and opportunities, uh, would you mind just giving our listeners an overview of your group and uh, what you all focus on?
0: So the European real estate um, platform is comprises over, over 60 people, 60 investment professionals uh, across nine offices in, in, in seven countries. We do both debt and equity. And we invest across the risk profile. So we do everything from core to, to value add and opportunistic. Um, We're vertically integrated. So that means that, you know, we have extensive transaction asset management teams in all all the markets in which we're investing, uh, as well as having portfolio management, research and strategy and risk management functions. And we we believe that gives us the best uh, platform for for a holistic um, investment approach we've been around um for a number of years over 10 years now the european platform um i i've been around for the entirety of that time for my sins um and we really benefit from having um the strength and, and stability of a, of a parent company like mass mutual which has enabled us to, to take a, a long-term approach to our investing so we currently have offices in london where i'm based uh, paris madrid Milan, we have three offices in Germany, Berlin, Munich and Frankfurt, as well as Amsterdam and Stockholm. So a key a key tenant of, of what we do, how we invest, our investment philosophy is investing where we have boots on the ground expertise. So that's absolutely paramount to everything we do. We think that's the best way to uh, produce the best returns for, for our investors fundamentally. So we have best in class team of transactors, and similarly, a best-in-class team of asset managers. And from a value-add investor's perspective, both of those aspects are absolutely crucial. Transactors from getting deals done, sourcing deals, particularly off-market, and then asset management teams who are very integrated into the acquisition process, um, but then are tasked with executing business plans. And particularly for value-add, that's absolutely crucial. Business plans can be complicated and, and time-critical. Um, and I think there's no better kind of testament to the strength of the platform and, and the importance of having local market presence than what we've seen um, during the pandemic. So in the last 18 months, during a time of, of unprecedented market conditions when transaction volumes generally have have dropped off, you know, our platform in Europe has, has thrived, thankfully. And you know, we've completed over two billion euros worth of of acquisitions across over 30 deals, of which Eighty-five percent have been off market, and that's that's a huge achievement for the team, and, and really something that you know bears out the strength of the platform that we have in bearings.
1: Yeah, that, that's really interesting, and I know the other. Um, you know, when I think about the platform, you, you know, you mentioned the the local presence, the the stability uh, in terms of having the you know mass mutual ownership, and and you know the other kind of point I think about is is the you know real laser focus on sustainability.
0: You're absolutely right. You know, it's a huge focus of ours, um, and that's consistent. You know, with the the philosophy that we we all share at Bearings, and as you know, it's number one priority across all our investment teams. You know, across asset classes in Bearings, Um, as you know, the real estate industry, you know, is a major consumer of energy. You know, we have a real, real opportunity and a real responsibility to to drive change, and and Bearings has, has been at the forefront of that. And we've got a number of examples. Um, of, of deals which we've completed recently, which would would bear that out, and really trying to push the boundaries and, and lead the industry in, in the right direction. Um, we've also got a responsibility to try and really enhance and transform the built environment um, to the benefit of local communities, so we can you know foster positive change. Um, looking at themes, social themes such as diversity and, and well-being, and making sure that we are not just we're very focused on the E um, in ESG, but we're also really focused on the on the S as well, which is which is vitally important and something. That we can really sort of bring our, our real estate expertise to to bear.
1: Yeah, hugely important stuff. I want to come back to all of that, so um, uh, let's uh, let's take a note of that for for a minute. Um, but but maybe before we we get into that, let's uh, talk a little bit about the current environment. So uh, we had one of your uh, colleagues on the podcast about a year ago, and you know, thinking back to that, it was actually quite a odd time to some degree because we had. Um, we had lockdowns in place, we had, you know, some strange situations going on where international real estate, uh, investors couldn't really travel. And so that was having some effects in terms of, uh, the, uh, pricing dynamics, the supply demand dynamics, et cetera. Um, now there's a perception that, that we're in a better place today. I certainly hope we are. Um, but I'm curious is, is, is that what you're actually seeing, you know, on the ground today?
0: Sure. Um, well, thankfully, we are able to travel now, so only, only just, um, but over the next kind of weeks and months, I'll be spending a lot of time across Europe and across our network with with colleagues, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to because it's been a while. Um, but yeah, things I think are certainly in a better place and a different place than they were, you know, 12 months ago or so, uh, primarily as a result of the, the amazing work that the science and medical communities have done and, and the rollout of vaccination programs, which has enabled everything else to follow. Um, There's there's definitely encouraging economic signs. We've had a strong bounce back as as lockdowns have ceased and we're seeing some positive high frequency data, which is demonstrating increasing confidence in both manufacturing and, and service sectors. Um, as always, we kind of need to stress that you know Europe is not homogenous and, and the recovery is not perfectly synchronized. So we're seeing economic output in certain countries like Germany and Sweden, for example, back to pre-COVID levels. Others which are, are close behind, and then some others which are, are, are lagging a little bit. So Europe is, is um, you know, should never really be t- treated as one one sort of entity. Um, different characteristics, different growth profiles, different points in the cycles throughout. When we look at the, the real estate markets, it, it really varies according to sectors. There's been some, some clear winners and losers. Logistics, for example, has been one of the major winners, which has had sort of record a uh, year and a half, in both in terms of occupational demand and, and in capital markets. But um, outside of outside of sheds in general, office markets are starting to pick up, improving quarter on quarter, up by about a third in Q2 over Q1 this year in major Western European um, cities, albeit still down significantly around about 40% on sort of normal pre-COVID levels. We, we track daily mobility data, which shows a steady increase in the movement of people in cities, which again, not back to pre-COVID levels is starting to approach these sorts of levels in, in certain countries and cities anyway. And in terms of the capital markets, transaction volumes were down around about 30% uh, last year versus 2019. Uh, but signs are that this is starting to recover. We're up 20% in Q2 over Q1 this year. In terms of sector, the, the pivot from retail uh, into logistics and resi continues whilst OFFS remains the largest invested in sector, which which may come as a surprise to some. Um, in terms of debt markets, liquidity dried up very quickly as it, as it always does um, in times of volatility. So when the pandemic hit, uh, traditional lenders retrenching and really focusing on, on the most core assets That opened up the door to some new entrants to gain market share Uh, and debt still remains very tight. Um, And again, it it really increases the importance of a sponsor's track record and and lender relationships as well. And finally, in terms of capital flows, you know, Europe is still is a very large and liquid market and and remains in demand from investors with 41% of all global capital raised for real estate allocated to to European funds. So so investors still generally really seeing the, the reasons behind investing into Europe. Now, of course, despite this sort of positive or, you know, improving sentiment anyway, there there remains considerable risk. So new variants of COVID and potential risk of further restrictions remains a constant threat. Uh, How economies will cope when the unwind of state support comes through remains to be seen. We're experiencing some near-term inflation spikes, which, although we, we believe these are likely to be transitory, still impacts construction costs, for example. Um, and that we're also seeing supply chain issues, um, really related to the, the the rapid rapid opening up of um, of economies. Real estate markets um, sectors in particular, leisure and hospitality, have had a torrid time for obvious reasons as they try and counter eighteen months worth of very limited trading. But taken as a whole, you know, we're certainly cautiously optimistic relative to where we were twelve months ago.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that that's definitely a much more p- positive, I guess, uh, outlook or assessment of what's going on than, than we heard a year ago. So that's very encouraging to hear. Um, okay. So great overview of kind of where we are um, at a high level. Let's talk specifically about um, some of the opportunities that you and the team are seeing, are capitalizing on today, et cetera. So I know from previous conversations uh, and in some of the sectors that you mentioned um, uh, earlier, logistics, uh, living, and office, I think are are a few focuses of the team. So let's let's start there. Let's maybe start with uh, the one that's I would say maybe is a. Least controversial, uh, just because it's been—I don't know if you would describe it as a bit of a darling sector, uh, at least the past several years. But let's start with logistics. Um, interested, uh, kind of what you're seeing most recently uh, in the logistics space.
0: Sure. Um, I mean, you're right. Logistics is, is definitely, you know, it, it, it's been a bit of a darling um, of the industry for a while, really. Um, and, but, but um, you know, certainly, you know, over the last 18 months, um, the, the sector has been a key theme for us as a house for a number of years. And, and to be clear, when I when I talk about logistics, you know, I'm talking about warehousing across the supply chain from the sort of the XXL, you know, million square foot or more let to Amazon distribution centers um, in major logistics corridors all the way down to the last mile logistics small units, you know, in city centers or on the edge of city centers and in densely populated areas and really everything in between. And there's some new subsectors which have come through as well, such as temperature controlled or or cold storage as well, which are which are growth sectors. Um, I mean the growth of e-commerce and associated disruption to supply chains has been well documented. But what we've seen in the last 18 months is is the rapid acceleration of this growth in demand as as e-commerce penetration has soared for for obvious reasons because we've all generally been stuck at home. Uh, total online sales in in Western Europe have increased by about 35% during this time, from from 12% to 16. So still quite a lot of growth, only at 16% at the moment. And at the same time, we've also seen you know onshoring or nearshoring, so so bringing stock closer to end markets, uh, and also a challenge to the just-in-time you know, supply chain model, which is creating huge demand, which in turn is, is putting upward pressure on rents, which is what we're we're always we're always looking for. Uh, so there's a real sort of uh, supply demand imbalance, and, balance, and that, that's what's driving driving the capital markets interest in the sector. Um, and whilst there could be a, a slowing in in the growth of e-commerce penetration once once life hopefully returns to normal, we don't believe that it will be reversed in a, in a post-COVID world. Um, again, remember that e-commerce in, in certain areas of Western Europe is still pretty immature. So it's sub 10% in, in Italy and Spain, sub 15% in Sweden, France. Um, so there's huge growth potential. Um, there's an interesting interesting stat that um, our research team was, was, was telling us about that for every um, extra 1 billion euros of online spend, we need um, 100,000 square meters of warehousing space to, to support that. Um, And according to to our forecast, this will equate to an additional 41 million square meters of new online logistics demand over the next three years in Western Europe. That's an increase of 25% over and above the already great demand that we're seeing. And that shows how how chronic this supply demand imbalance is and and why rents are, are set to keep growing.
1: Wow, that's interesting. So even though it's been uh, a sector that's been in the spotlight for a few
0: years now, it's it's still sort of chronically undersupplied. Completely, completely, and of course, pricing is has hardened to reflect that, um, and that that's the challenge, and that's the the challenge for for us as a house to make sure we're doing the right deals in the right locations, because you know it, it is getting very very competitive. But you know we've been we've been very active in in the last six to twelve months in this sector, um, you know particularly in the build-to-core space. So so developing. Logistics units generally alongside development partners, and and that's a strategy that's well suited to the sector because build periods for for logistics assets are generally a lot less than an office or a or a multi-family block, for example. So, we, we've done a number of deals which we're we're, we're pretty happy about. Um, for example, recently we acquired a, a build-to-core opportunity in Greater London, um, which closed a couple of months ago. Here we've got planning permission in place for about 400,000 square feet of Grade A space within 12 miles of Canary Wharf uh, in the east of London, and that, that's just a great location, one of Europe's biggest logistics markets, most densely populated areas. So we're you know, really excited about what we can do there. We've acquired a number of sites in northern Italy, in and around Milan, which is which is obviously the, the economic powerhouse of, of the country as well as some bigger boxes in the major corridors between Milan and Bologna and, and Milan and Venice. And then one great deal that we completed in uh, early in the summer, actually, was an off-market transaction. The acquisition of a portfolio of six um, very high spec or will be very high spec that are being built at the moment. Uh, sustainable logistics assets in, in the top markets in Sweden. So Stockholm, Gothenburg, Malmo, uh, Helsingborg. These assets are going to be built by a first-class construction partner. We have no exposure to the construction process, which we like, but taking purely, purely lease-up risk. Um, extra kicker with this deal was that 40% of the portfolio is already let on a long-term basis to a secure covenant. And you know, we acquired this quickly, one-to-one basis with a substantial spread between the yield on cost, and our expectation of the the exit yield, and again, that exit yield, even even in the sort of couple of months since we acquired this portfolio, we believe it has come in relatively uh, substantially. And again, the reason we were able to do this was because of the relationship that the bearings team in in Stockholm and Sweden had with the developer and our and our strong reputation in the marketplace.
1: Those are some great examples. Interesting to see that the the trend playing out across a variety of countries: UK, Italy, Nordic region, uh, etc. So yeah um, seems like the the structural growth story is is very much intact, but it's interesting to to hear that kind of real time um, market color uh, to put a little meat on the bone around that. um okay, well let's let's switch gears and talk about living or I guess as we might uh, refer to it in the u s the residential uh, sector. So I'm curious to hear you know, how this uh, space has been impacted by uh, COVID and kind of what, what you're seeing out there uh, today, whether it's uh, opportunities or risks or what have you.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, well, we talk about both the residential and the living market. I mean, we, we generally look at, at the living market, which is a very wide one, and it kind of incorporates, frankly, any any type of property with, with a bed. So, so multifamily or sort of rented uh, residential, um, which in itself, you know, has numerous subsets. You know, we look at student housing, senior living, hotels and, and, you know, various others. Um, and within this broad category, again, there's opportunities and, and risks, of course, and there's been winners and losers throughout COVID. You know, hotels being the most obvious um, example of, of one of the losers with the, you know, the obvious challenges that, that the sector has had. Um, some of these sectors, you know, the market's still relatively immature in in, in Europe, um, in certain countries, certainly relative to, to the U.S., you know, for example, multifamily or PRS, as, as we call it in the UK, has only really just started becoming an institutional asset class in the last sort of five or six years. And similarly, purpose-built student housing, which is very mature in, in the UK and obviously in the US, is still only an emerging asset class in, in many you know continental European countries, which in itself brings opportunity, but, but also risk. Um, from a value-add perspective, our main focus generally is, is on multifamily and, and purpose-built student accommodation. Um, I mean, the rationale behind multifamily is is pretty clear, you know, urbanisation has been a consistent trend uh, and with housing supply in most cities struggling to keep up with demand, particularly for for modern stock with amenities, um, housing costs generally higher, meaning that buying a flat or or house is difficult for most. Uh, we, we favor markets such as again Stockholm in Sweden, which is growing rapidly but has an undersupply um, of of housing, particularly new, good quality housing. Uh, and what we've certainly seen throughout the last eighteen months is that customers I- expect more from their accommodation in terms of quality.
1: Yeah, I was curious if if it's changed. Like, are people looking for different things now? kind of 18 months into a pandemic
0: yeah i mean i think you know we've all been we've all been kind of stuck at home and i think that focuses the mind on your immediate surroundings more than it it probably would have done um prior to the pandemic but um people are also you know more transient now than than they were you know social media is obviously much more of a presence everyone's aware of of the competition where they could move to so I, i think um look i think I think things are changing very, very quickly and it's this doesn't just apply to, to residential properties, of course. But I think everyone is focused on on service, they're focused on quality, well being, making sure they, they maximize uh, you know their facilities, their living space, its become far more important. You know, our own well is is a is a really important trend. Um, so that that's been a big trend. And I think you know what we're seeing now, and this again, this applies to many different um, real estate uh, sectors. You know, it, we're becoming more operating business, and you know, an understanding of those the key components that go into that is a really crucial part of of investing in the sector. Um, we, the student housing sector is one that's that's worth talking about um, because we're seeing some great opportunities there and we've been very active in the sector, um, most recently acquiring a, a portfolio again in the UK. And again, the rationale behind uh, student housing or purpose-built student accommodation in the UK is a is a pretty clear one. So the UK is one of the top destination globally for students. Um, it's got a strong domestic but also overseas market. But fundamentally, it's got a complete undersupply of modern purpose-built accommodation and planning restrictions as well, which prevents a lot of that supply quickly coming online. Across the country, I think we have something like only 30% provision of purpose-built student accommodation, which means that the remainder of students have to find accommodation elsewhere and in private dwellings. And there's an implication on cost, service, amenity, security. Uh, students want to be sociable um, and also well-being. So you know, there's a, there's a really clear rationale for 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 the sector. Um, it's also as a sector less well correlated uh, to other commercial sectors like office logistics and it's previously been very defensive in, in in times of economic volatility in previous cycles which we of course like at the moment you know in the immediate term there there is certainly still risk you know the, the assets that we are developing in the UK for example they won't be ready until the 2022 23 academic year which is which is a component that we really liked. I don't want to be don't want to be taking lease up risk in the last 12 months and even for this academic year you know, I'd rather not be taking the lease up risk. So we're hopeful that, you know, we get through the immediate term risk, and but the long-term drivers for, for the student market are, are very, very strong. And look, it, it applies to a number of other countries as well. Every other every country is nuanced, every student market is nuanced. As I mentioned, the UK is, is more mature than, than most of the rest of Europe, but we're looking at also different markets, which are slightly more immature, but again, that, that can bring some some pretty interesting opportunities as well.
1: Very interesting. So lot, lots going on there uh, for from student housing to hotels uh, and, and beyond, so uh, some very interesting trends to to follow along there. Um, okay, well, let's let's move along to maybe the most controversial sector, uh, and that would be uh, office. I think everyone's got a view. Uh, what the future of office looks like? How many days a week folks are going to be in the office in the future? And then maybe you, you know what do we what we define as an office possibly is changing, and what uh, tenants expect is probably changing uh, as well. So, so tell me what you're seeing there. Curious how that's developed over the last you know kind of twelve to eighteen months
0: as well. It's a hugely interesting sector. I mean, we've always been um, sort of big believers. Uh, big investors in and developers of office space, um, and we've generated some some great returns for investors in the sector. Um, but you know, humans are, are social creatures, and we believe um, that offices are, are fundamental for for bringing people together uh, and helping to facilitate you know, an identifiable corporate culture, which is which is crucial to the success of a, any business. And we you know we have a conviction that in the long term, offices will remain very important and and, and a viable sector sort of post COVID. Uh, we, we've always been focused on selecting markets with strong fundamentals through the cycle, which obviously facilitates exit liquidity. You know, we're always looking at long-term drivers, so demographics, uh, diverse and innovative economies, tech hubs, etc. Uh, and we're also very targeted in selecting cities that are undersupplied with modern stock and have limited development pipelines. And a key theme in, in the market. Um, you know pre-COVID but you know post GFC has been there's been a relative lack of new development or redevelopment in, in many major markets. So if you look at Madrid or Amsterdam or Helsinki, um, you know, there's three times less modern stock today relative to 2010. So that's led to a chronic undersupply of, of grade A space in particular, which is, you know, conversely you know, where the overwhelming majority of, of demand is and, you know, over the last eighteen months as projects and developments have stalled or or been shelved entirely, you know, this situation is, has worsened. Um but I think I think what's what's vital for us as as real estate investors is you know we've got to understand what's happening behind the headlines and, and the total numbers. We need to understand, you know, what are the key drivers of demand, how is that changed, what trends have been accelerated, as you mentioned, to make sure we're you know we're investing in and developing buildings which are perfectly aligned with with what occupiers want, you know, today and also obviously in the future. So one of one of the key trends that that we're seeing, we, we were seeing prior to COVID, but again, it's really been turbocharged by by the pandemic is a, is a flight to quality. And linked to that, there's a heightened focus on flexibility, as you mentioned, how do we use the space, and also on well-being, and of course, ESG as well. So this, this flight to quality is seen in both, you know, the nature of take up and also in rents. You know, generally at the prime end of the market, you know, rents have been very stable despite the fall off in, in take up, which is, which is quite telling. Um, using London for an example, um, last year, I think take up, take up fell by around about 57%. But of that demand that was still coming through, over 60% of it was grade A, so prime, new build, that's how we, how we would describe it. Um, and of that, the majority or a lot of that was pre-let space. So it's occupiers looking at what is going to be built and they're saying, okay, I, I want to lease the best in class, the most modern buildings out there. So there's a, real, there's a real drive to, you know, similar trend to what we're talking about when we're talking residential, you know, you know, occupies are very focused uh, on on the prime end of the market. And, you know, businesses, you know, like, like bearings, you know, we see we see a building as a reflection of our culture and our values. And that's very important. You know, it's one of the biggest problems that, that any business has at the moment is is attracting and retaining staff and and, a, and an office building. You know how it connects with our corporate value is a very important and very important sort of weapon in 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 that battle that we have.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the ESG angle because I know that's been a real um, focus and in, in how that kind of um, plays a plays a role, especially
0: in the office space. Absolutely. So I mean, ESG and sustainability, you know, for the real estate industry, I, I you know, I will see him as. I've been in the industry for a long time and it was always something that was talked about as an industry but it was never something you could actually see you know properly in action and you you certainly didn't used to see it coming through in in rents or 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 yields that buildings would would achieve but you know that in the last you know five to ten years there's been a real pickup in pace and that, that again that has accelerated so so quickly over the last 18 months so it's not a it's not COVID, it's not sort of it's not been caused by COVID, but there's been a huge acceleration, and that's really great to see. You know, it's fantastic, and you know we're doing a lot in the office space at the moment across the board across strategies, um, and we are we are seeing ESG being so prominent, and it's not it's not just the the E in the ESG that's obviously a very important part, and it's a part that we 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 sometimes you know probably overly focus on, but it's it's the social aspect as, as well in that one. Um, I was chatting to, we're we're doing a a large development, which I'll maybe tell you a little about in in the South Bank of of London at the moment. I was talking to our asset manager on that product today, and he was talking about, you know, some of the buildings that are coming online in the future beyond our one, which is due to be delivered delivered in 2024. And he was saying that, you know, in London at the moment, you know, all the new product is, is moving to net zero carbon now we are, we are doing the same thing you know we we've been into this building for well into the design of this building for the last 6 months but even in the last 6 months you know that that is that is changing you know we want we're at the forefront of that which is great and how it should be but it's amazing that you know london is is a large gateway city of course but you know all the new product that is coming through really there's an expectation that that has to be net zero carbon which is a wholesale change from from where we were only a couple of years ago, which which is great.
1: Okay. So the expectation has changed dramatically. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, what, and what we're seeing, which again is great is, you know, we, ha- we always had a conviction, as I mentioned, that not only do you have a, a moral responsibility to, to build sustainably, you know, be energy efficient, but also it's the right thing to do from a financial perspective for your investors. You know, we believed that it would enhance returns at the end of the day. And what we're starting to see over the last couple of years is some, you know, quantifiable evidence that 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 is correct we're seeing some hard data that backs that up there's been some interesting surveys again, again in the UK where there is a there was a there was a very um clear correlation between rental premiums and shortened lease up periods um according to what um sustainability um, certification a building is getting so that that's great to see and as i said you know we're we're at the forefront of that um but again, it's not just the the E; it's also the S. And I know you know colleagues have have discussed this as well. You know, we're we're looking at how you know how can we improve local communities in which we're we're developing buildings. We have a a, a building I mentioned, which is one on the south bank of of London, which is a, a recent acquisition for us. Um, again, it's the real estate fundamentals of this building are are absolutely amazing. The location is is 100% prime. You know, we're demolishing a, a functionally obsolete. Um, building about 50,000 square feet, and we're, we're, we're redeveloping that into an 11-story, 150,000 square foot um, office overlooking the Thames, St. Paul's Cathedral. We're right next to the Tate Modern, right behind the Shakespeare Globe. So it's, it's a great real estate location, infrastructure links, everything that we would look at. Um, And we're developing this to net zero. We're looking at a BRIAM outstanding certification. So from a real estate perspective, it it works great. And from an environmentally uh, friendly perspective also, it's going to be a market-leading, future-proof product. But we're also looking at, you know, how can we improve the social aspects of this? And we're trying to do that in a few ways. This building, interestingly, has a couple of floors reserved for um, slightly more affordable rents, so rents which are discounted from market levels. And that's really a a way of of trying to engage with the, the local community So those floors are set aside for local businesses at reduced rents really to try and try and improve the diversity of of, uh, the occupational profile and really try and try and give something back and improve those that local community in which we're building. Um, It's fundamentally a fantastic deal. and, And we hope that from an environmental and a social perspective, it will also really raise the bar in that in that location.
1: That's awesome! Great, great examples. Thank you for sharing that. And it's it's interesting to me. You know, I, I think to your point, maybe when you think about ESG in real estate, there is a tendency to think first about environmental, right? Because there c- can be such an environmental impact. So interesting to hear what's going on from the net zero um, side of things. In the in the you know incredible focus on that, but uh, but your your commentary around the the social um, aspect is uh, very interesting to, to me to hear as well. And some of those, some of those examples. Yeah. Um, okay. Rory. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. So from the kind of current state of play in the market overall to um, you know, where you're seeing uh, opportunities today across some of these sectors. So thanks for the insight um, you know, maybe just to wrap up if, uh, if you're an investor in, European real estate today, especially, you know, focus of our conversation has been more on what we would term value add strategies. Um, If if you have an allocation to this asset class or considering one, you know, what would you recommend folks uh, focus on maybe for the next, you know, 12, 18 months?
0: sure so i mean in in times of uncertainty volatility which which we are certain in the moment i'd i'd be even more focused on on the long term kind of fundamentals so you you're buying in strong locations focusing on excellent infrastructure links um Connectivity, um, cities where they have strong population growth, and, and they have that you know supply-demand imbalance, which is crucial for seeing growth. Um, and in, in those types of markets, and again, those types of locations, be so focused on the micro-location. But where you have that strength of location, I wouldn't be afraid necessarily of a, of a built-to-core strategy, especially where you have the right partners in place, the right structures in place, particularly in logistics, um, where the market is moving so quickly, supply chains have been disrupted, and warehouses that were built, you know. Three to five years ago may may no longer be fit for purpose. So I think that's that's still there's still a lot of a lot of road to go in in that particular strategy. Uh, you can look at subsectors as well within logistics. You know, I mentioned cold storage where we're seeing some very interesting opportunities. Where there's a, there's a real lack of stock, but but growing demand, or maybe in opportunities where you can convert non-industrial properties into warehouses, particularly if you're in and around city centres. There's such huge demand in that space. Um, and finally, as we've we've said, you know, I'd focus on optimizing energy efficiency of buildings or portfolios, maximizing the sustainability of a property, you know, during the build um, through the process and also the materials used, and and really using your ESG strategies as an additional weapon in a, in a va- value add armory. You know, I, I would caution, you know, as I mentioned before, European markets are, uh, you know, the heterogeneous. Um, Different points in their economic recoveries, different risks attached, different cultures, and, and again, I would stress the need to have that local market presence and expertise if you're if you're able to navigate and, and take advantage and exploit some of these these what are frankly very interesting current market conditions for, for value add investing. Great
1: points and great guidance, um, and uh, and great context that I appreciate it. I feel uh, a lot more up to date. Uh, in terms of what's going on, uh, especially with some of these key sectors and some of the trends that uh, that you and the team are seeing today. So, Rory, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for uh, joining me today.
0: No, thanks, Greg.
1: Thanks for listening to episode number four of season five of Streaming Income. Remember, if you want to be the first to hear about our latest episodes on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, be sure to follow Streaming Income on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.